Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Um, Now let's just take a second, and we're going to pray, and then we will hear a word about that text in Ephesians. Uh, God, thank you for another week that we are not promised, and I just ask that as we gather today to hear from your word and hear what you would have us take away today, that you would just bless our ears, that you would bless Billy God and give him the words that we need to hear from your scripture today, and that we would come away from this place changed, and that you would just continue to grow us together in the gospel. Amen. Amen. You guys can go ahead and be seated. So again, yeah, we're in Ephesians, and uh, we're just going to continue to dive through and go through this passage. I kind of chuckled to myself because um, I try to help put the welcome together a little bit with some of the announcements and stuff like that. And it for sure says that we wanted to reach through every neighborhood and over every holler. But uh, the girl from Oklahoma won't say holler. That's okay. Because we know that love is deeper than the holler, right? Those of us who are true North Carolinians know what I'm talking about. Maybe not. It's Randy Travis. It's okay. You got Spotify. You can figure it out later. Okay. So we're in Ephesians 6. And we're in a really unique kind of passage here as we dive through and talk a little bit more about what it looks like to labor for King Jesus, which is what we're going to do tonight. It had me thinking about different jobs I've had. So when I lived in Missouri, I was uh, doing an internship that would ultimately lead into a residency that would then uh, eventually culminate with me being a pastor on staff at a church there. And so while I did that, believe it or not, they didn't pay me as an intern a whole lot of money. So I worked a lot of interesting part-time jobs. And I've got a lot of funny stories, whether it was when I was in college and worked at McDonald's or at Walmart. But perhaps the most frustrating job that I ever worked was when I was a valet at the Veterans Hospital. Okay, so it was a really kind of interesting job. My brother was the one who hooked me up with it. He actually helped me a lot getting different jobs throughout my time as an intern, but that's another story. So I worked as a valet, and the way it worked was you couldn't accept tips, right? This was a service to the veterans, so you would park cars. Totally fine, understandable. Um, you would get a wide array of vehicles that you would park. You know, sometimes it'd be the brand new Mustang off the lot. Other times it would make sure you want to maybe, you know, be careful because you'd have to step over some trash bags as you got in the car. It was very unique. So what ended up happening while we were there was they were building this triple-decker parking garage so that they could uh, serve more people. Well, that meant everybody and their brother had to avoid the construction. So we parked everybody's car. It was awesome. I loved it. It made my days really, really stress-free. I'm kidding. No, what we would do is literally run nonstop from the minute we got there till the minute we clocked out. So let me paint a picture for you. There is this large street, and then there's a, a long like kind of driveway leading into the hospital, and there would be cars parked all the way down the street and all the way down the driveway, and we would just get people in the hospital as quickly as we could. And so certainly this led to some frustration. People would get there, you know, like 30 seconds before their appointment, which is what you do when you go to the doctor, right? That's the way to do it. And they would be really mad because they have to wait in line. 
So constantly we would have people who would just skip past the line, just go up to the front and try and, you know, game the system. And they always use the same line, son, I'm a veteran. To which point I would be like, as is everyone here, welcome to the club. Yes, you are correct. Well, we tried to be patient and and work with people. We wanted to respect them, honor them, and also understand that it was a frustrating circumstance. However, one particular day, there was a guy who pulled in, gunned it as fast as he could around everyone, pulled around a DAV vehicle, vehicle, that's a whole other thing, and ended up just kind of parking cockeyed so that we couldn't pull any other cars forward, hops out and throws the key at me. (laughs) And I'm just like, it took everything in me, y'all. I was like, Lord Jesus, I need your strength because I don't want to fight this guy, but I didn't know what to do. And I just was very patient. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to just let him know that this is unacceptable. And so I went up to him and was like, sir, I'm really sorry. This is the line for valet service. You can't just jump up to the front. Um, you're going to have to get back in line. And he just looked at me and he's like, son, I have an appointment in five minutes for my wife and me. And you're going to tell me that I have to get back. He starts going on. I was like, sir, I understand it's frustrating, but you're going to have to get back in line just like everyone else. Son, I serve this country. And that's when I said, as did everyone else in this line right here. And as soon as I said that, the window rolls down and it's his wife. And I'm thinking, oh, no, I don't want to get in a fight with this guy and his wife. And then the most unexpected thing ever happened. I hear her go, you let him have it. I told him not to pull up here. He wouldn't listen to me. He said, oh, no, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to go on up there. They're going to give me a ticket. Well, look at it. I write him a ticket. I call the police on it if I was you. And I'm just sitting there like, oh, my gosh. What just happened? This lady just drills into her husband. And he went from, like, the most confident person on the planet to just slowly, like, looking down and looking down. And so I just was like, you know what, sir? I'm going to write you a, a ticket for your car. Here you go. You go on in. I'm going to park this thing. That's a rough day, right? Now, we've all had jobs like that. We've all had frustrating moments, and that's comical. But we've all had hard days at work. We have. And whether we're the boss or we're dealing with someone who is a really difficult boss, each of us can kind of share stories of how it can be challenging to work. And in this room, look, I know there's a vast variety of experiences with our jobs, whether it's fixing machinery or changing diapers, right? It can be very difficult at best to stay positive. And today we look at Paul's challenge to laborers, but more specifically to bond servants and masters. And we're going to look at this idea that we work to glorify King Jesus, But before we jump into our passage, before we dive into this, I really want to kind of address the elephant, as it were, in the passage, and that is slavery. We can't just simply go past this and start preaching and talking about employees and employers, though that is certainly something that can be inferred and we will. We have to understand that this is often used um, to kind of say that, hey, like the Bible promotes slavery, and it doesn't. And uh, I want to just kind of talk about that briefly, and then we'll dive into the passage. So our perception of slavery in America is very different than the, what the reality of slavery was in the New Testament. Slavery as practiced in the United States was almost entirely racial, right? It was rich white people owning black people. That's what it was. It was also a lifetime of service. Once you were a slave, you were owned, and any children that you had belonged to the, the master. And so this is really frustrating because as you look at this, slaves were basically seen as the equivalent to livestock. And American slavery was grossly sinful. 
It's one of the greatest tragedies of our faith that men and women who claim to love and follow Jesus Christ also own slaves. We just we can't gloss past that. That is a blemish in our history that we have to face head on, especially considering the context of where we live. Frederick Douglass, who was a famous Christian abolitionist, he wrote this regarding American Christian slaveholders. He says, what I have said Respecting and against religion, I mean strictly to apply to the slaveholding, women whipping, cradle plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. We have men stillers for ministers, women whippers for missionaries, and cradle plunderers for church members. It's important to understand that Paul does not support this kind of slavery. In fact, in 1 Timothy 1, in verses 9 through 10, you get this long list of what some of the worst sins of that day were, what some of the most, uh, some of the biggest abominations to God, and listed among those are slave traders or enslavers. It's an atrocious sin. So what is Paul talking about here? What's the difference? How does New Testament slavery differ from that of American slavery? Well, let's just start off by saying it's still bad. Okay, so like I'm not sitting here going, no, nah, New Testament slavery was good. No, no, it's bad, but it's different. Okay, so it's important that we understand the, the difference and contrast them. In Paul's day, slavery was a, an arrangement that was made to pay off a defaulted debt. So unlike today, when you and I could declare bankruptcy, which you can't just say bankruptcy and be bankrupt, Michael, but... <laughs> If you were to declare bankruptcy, you know, you, you, you could default on your debt. You can't do that in the ancient world. People would instead work for their lender to repay their debts. In other cases, those who were in extreme poverty, right, who saw no other way in order to make ends meet, would often sell themselves into slavery with a kind and benevolent master so that they could have a better quality of life. Generally, most slaves were actually free by the age 30. Okay, which is good news for me because I'm 31, so I wouldn't be a slave. Good deal. Either they would become free by purchasing their freedom, right? They worked enough to pay off their debt, or the government would often emancipate slaves. And during their time serving, they were often educated. They were equipped with skills that would benefit them upon their freedom. And and once they were free, many became Roman citizens. So a slave, here's the important part, could be a deacon or elder in the church. And often Paul is actually commending and celebrating slaves who were members of the church. Now that's different than American slavery, where black people weren't even allowed to be in the same church as white people. Okay, that's not okay at all. Knowing the difference between American slavery and bond servants, it's really important for us, right? It's a tragedy that scripture in our history was twisted to support slavery. So I kind of wanted to start with that because it's really important that we understand this passage in its proper context before we see how it applies to us today. Again, it's really important that one of the reasons we do what we call expositional preaching is we go line by line, verse by verse through books of the Bible. And we do that because we often end up dealing with subjects that are touchy, dealing with things that we you know, kind of don't want to talk about. Sometimes you don't wake up in the morning, you're like, you know what I want to talk about? I don't want to talk about redemption and forgiveness and freedom. I don't want to talk about bond servants and masters, but God's word is infallible and it has something for us. It's living, it's active. So we want to sit under his word and be instructed by it. So we remember who this is written to, and we have this mindset as we look forward and we see first this call to work for Christ. Look again at the passage with me, verses 5 through 8. 
It says, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. So again, as we seek to understand this passage in context, it's kind of easy to see how it applies to us today as we see the correlation between employee and employers, right? But the command is clear. It's that we are supposed to live all of our life for Jesus. We're supposed to have the entirety, the sum of our life lived for Christ. That's the idea of Coram Deo. We chose this name intentionally. And again, we're going to actually spend some time next week talking about what it means to live a life quorum Deo. What does it mean to live before the face of God, which is what quorum Deo means, right? How were these bond servants supposed to glorify Jesus in their work? Well, Paul mentions a couple different ways that their exemplary service would look like. The first he says is glorify Christ by working respectfully. Paul says that they were to obey with fear and trembling, which carries out from verse 21, which talks about reverence or fear of Christ. Right? They were to work seriously. They were to work reverently because they were working for Jesus. They weren't working for their master. They weren't working to get out of debt. They were working for their king. The second thing is that they were to glorify Christ by working wholeheartedly. Notice the emphasis on the heart in these verses. It says, with a sincere heart, doing the will of God from the heart. Paul urged the bondservants not to be hypocrites, right? Just working when the boss was present. Don't work only while being watched in order to please men, right? It was a common temptation for the master to to threaten slaves. And it's a common temptation for the servant to be lazy or to lie instead of working faithfully. Now, here's a confession for you guys. I mentioned earlier that I worked at Walmart. That was the most sanctifying job I ever worked. It was hard. It It was a struggle. So there was this thing that happened at Walmart where different managers had different ideas of how things should be done. And so, no joke, in the same day, I'd be told, hey, Billy, go put this display out. And I'd go, all right, get the pallet jack. All right, I'm going. I'm going to go put it out, start pulling it out. Another manager come by and be like, what are you doing with that display? Put that back in there. And so I just started doing what I called reckless obedience. Whatever I was told to do, I was going to do it because nobody knows what they're doing. Everybody's telling me what to do. The funniest moment was when I had a manager who never worked grocery a day in their life came up to me and said, hey, I want you to um, open this display right here and was kind of explaining how they wanted me to do it. And I was like, you know, I don't think we should do it that way because it'll fall apart. And they kind of got frustrated and and showed some bravado. They're like, no, I really want you to do it this way. They wanted me to open the uh, saran wrap. If you've ever seen that, that, that's so things don't fall apart. Open it so that it could be fully displayed and then move it to the other side. And I'm like, that's a real bad idea. Like it's going to fall to pieces, but okay, reckless obedience. Here we go. And sure enough, no sooner than I got two inches off the ground, it tumbled everywhere. It was awful. So I, uh, I got frustrated and got really apathetic and I was young. I wasn't married yet. I was like, just started this internship, was fresh out of college. And I was like, you know, this job doesn't matter. I don't really care. So I would take a little bit longer to use the bathroom. See, using the bathroom at work is beautiful because you get paid to relieve yourself. And I was like, this is great. I'm on the clock. I'm getting paid. This is my time and I'm getting paid. This is great. So I started, you know, just taking a little bit longer than I probably should have utilized the facilities, which is bad. You know, you're going to do things to your body. You shouldn't sit that long. But that's the point. I, uh, I came out of the bathroom one day 
And my brother was standing there and he's like, dude, what are you doing? My brother was the one who got me that job. I mentioned that earlier. And he really just kind of jumped all over me. He had noticed that I had been gone for a while. He's like, aren't you like trying to become a pastor? What are you doing? Who are you working for? And I was super convicted. But see, I'm not the only person who struggled with this in their past. Do you know employees spend roughly 18 hours a week on average on the internet? Social media, shopping Amazon, maybe musician's friend, not trying to name anybody in the room, but you know. We, we, we all like will fall into this pattern where we just want to amuse ourselves and we don't want to work for someone else or for ourselves even. But we really should be working for King Jesus. See, my heart was divided. I wasn't working earnestly for Jesus. I was working for me and my pleasure and my fun. Both servants and masters, they're, they're called to remember that Christ sees all things. And so they're supposed to labor wholeheartedly. Paul goes on, they're supposed to glorify Christ by working willingly. Paul says that they should serve with a good attitude, not a begrudging spirit. That's convicting, you know what I mean? Because sometimes we like want to fight and think like, well, I just need some coffee. I just want to do this and this. And, and we don't think of what it looks like to go into work with a sincere heart, with an earnest heart. He tells them to put their heart and soul into their work because after all, they're doing God's will. So how does this correlate to today? Like, how do we apply this? Well, again, I think this speaks to our work. We should work through Christ, like Christ, and for Christ. Let's, let's break these down for a moment. Work through Christ. Remember that Paul, he is addressing the Christian church. These are believers in Christ who have been spiritually raised from death to life. They've been saved by the grace of Jesus through the atoning death of Jesus. And as a result, they now have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So they and we... Do not live our lives, love our spouses, raise our kids, or work our jobs alone. The living Christ abides in us. So do you work through Christ? Right In the Old Testament, Joseph, he's sold into slavery. He ends up working for Potiphar. In Genesis 39, four times it says that the Lord was with Joseph. He's not alone, and he's in some pretty terrible circumstances. Neither are you. Remember Ephesians 5.18, it says, be filled with the Spirit. That everything we do, what shapes our relationship with our families, with our children, with our jobs, is this empowering Spirit. That we can do our jobs by depending on the Spirit's power. So here's a question for all of us. Do you pray before you go to work? Do you pray before you go to work? Do you pray for the Spirit to fill you and for God to use you as a person for His glory while working? Do you guys think that Jesus would slack off when nobody was watching? No. Would Jesus ever bill somebody for extra time? No. Was Christ a begrudging servant? No. Did he minimize his job? No. So if you and I are followers of Jesus Christ, then we need to be exemplary in our service. Well, we don't need supervision. We don't. Besides this, the workplace is a great place where we can actually make the gospel look good to nonbelievers, not turn them off. I can't tell you how many times I've heard of people who are like, what, what's the difference? I mean, they're a church-going person, but they're even worse than I am. They're rude to people. They, they're backbiting. They gossip. This should not be. Again, we should make the gospel attractive. Second thing is we work for Christ. You should do your best as if you were doing it for Jesus. The famous English pastor Charles Spurgeon said this, he said, did anybody thus dream of supervising Raphael and Michelangelo to keep them to their work? 
you know, the famous painters. It says, no, the master artist requires no eyes to urge him on. Popes and emperors came to visit the great painters in their studios, but did they paint better because these grandees gazed upon them? Certainly not. Perhaps they did all the worse in the excitement or the worry of the visit. They had regard to do something better than the eyes of pompous people. You see, Spurgeon said this reality should lift our spirits. It should keep us from complaining and keep us from being lazy. I love how, the, again, the, the famous English, uh, English guys are, are nailing it right now. The English Anglican pastor, John Stott, he said this. He said, it is possible for the housewife to cook a meal as if Jesus Christ were going to eat it. Or to spring clean the house as if Jesus Christ were the honored guest. It's possible for teachers to educate children, for doctors to treat patients and nurses to care for them, for shop assistants to serve customers, accountants to audit books, and secretaries to type letters as if in each case they were serving Jesus Christ. You should work for King Jesus. I know what it's like to have frustrating bosses. I've had many of them. I just told you about some that would compete against each other. But again, who do you labor for? For yourself, for King Jesus. You should also do your work for Christ now, but realize that you're going to receive a reward for Christ later, right? This should be our motivator to store up treasure where moth and rust do not destroy. Man, we buy stuff like we like, I don't know if you've ever been there. Maybe you have. I obsess over things and like do all the research when we buy anything. It's a little ridiculous. I'm like watching YouTube reviews, looking up different review websites, taking notes, buy the thing. And then two months later, it's on a shelf collecting dust. Why do we labor to store up treasure for things that don't last? Many Christians don't meditate on this, right? They think, man, our works don't matter. We're not saved by that. We're saved by Christ's work alone. And that's true, right? Jesus's work saves us, not our works. However, right, we read this back in Ephesians 2, that God saved us to do good works and that he rewards those who are faithful, We should anticipate the ultimate bonus, right? We should long to hear the king say, well done, good and faithful servant. So who are you working for? Don't begrudge your job. And catch this, don't idolize your job. One of the most devastating things I woke up this morning was reading, jumped online, and a latest reports from Pew Research came out that most people don't see any real lasting value of long-term relationships. The most valuable thing they see that they need to work hard for is their occupation. That is so sad that we would work and then just die. What a life. God has called you to robust community. He's called you to display his glory and grandeur. Man, work for King Jesus and then enjoy your family. Enjoy a gospel community. Enjoy the good gifts he's given you. Don't idolize your job either, but instead work for the ultimate reward, which is Christ. So Paul now, he turns his attention from those who are bondservants to masters. And so we see second this, lead for Christ. Lead for Christ. Verse 9, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So he, he says to practice mutuality. Paul says, treat your slaves the same way. Masters were to treat their slaves as they wanted to be treated with integrity, with respect, with humility and gentleness. They were to treat them as if they were treating Jesus. 
If masters wanted respect and service, then they needed to give respect and service. They were to avoid hostility. Paul says, oversee them without threatening. This type of exhortation to masters, listen, was culturally really rare. This was super bizarre. But Christians were supposed to be different. They were not to bully. They were not to use aggression. They were to live with Christ-centered accountability. Paul says, you know that both their master and yours is in heaven. Hey, don't lose sight. Yeah, this person owes you money and he's working to pay that off. But don't forget who he belongs to and don't forget who you belong to. Masters were to live with a fear of Christ. There are so many Proverbs that speak so clearly to this. And so I just want to look at a few of them. It says this in Proverbs 22 too, The rich and the poor meet together and the Lord is the maker of them all. The poor man and the oppressor meet together and the Lord gives light to the eyes of both. Proverbs 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. There's an awareness of this sobering truth that changes the way that we live, right? Remember, God shows no partiality. He doesn't look and say, this rich person, that's who needs my attention. But this poor person, nah. No, God is impartial. Partiality was written into the Roman law. But Paul says on the last day, it's not going to matter. Does that matter how much you have in your bank account? It doesn't matter who you know. It matters whether or not you belong to Jesus because Jesus is utterly impartial. Roman law was discriminatory, but heavenly justice is not. Each of these principles shortened the distance between servant and master. And this way of life was incredibly radical. Now, again, this translates to those of us who are employers, supervisors, or bosses. My last job in Missouri, I was a manager. And let me tell you, if you ever want to lose sleep, just try and manage a bunch of college kids' schedules. It's like the most complicated puzzle in the world. You want off this day and you want to do what for this? And then I need someone who's going to work. Like it's super frustrating. Okay. I really hated it. We have to lead differently. And again, just like we would serve Christ, we have to lead through Christ like Christ and for Christ. Let's break that down. Lead through Christ. Well, again, this is the challenge of leadership. You take on numerous responsibilities. You make numerous sacrifices and you need the spirit's power. Right? Paul feels the pressure of leading churches. In 2 Corinthians, if you want to just relate with someone who's got a lot of weight on their shoulder, read 2 Corinthians 11. It'll encourage you for sure. And he goes on to describe how even in that weakness, the grace of Jesus is sufficient. We must lead out of Christ's strength, not our own. Lead like Christ. Again, Christ is not just the model servant. He is the ultimate master. What kind of leadership did Jesus execute? Servant leadership. He displayed the attitude that those of us who are in leadership should follow, right? He came to serve. He took up the towel. He cared for the vulnerable. He didn't seek earthly praise. He was a shepherd, not a dictator. Lead for Christ. Paul says that masters are going to give an account. As a leader, you may have more opportunity to bend the truth, to make unethical decisions, because you have less accountability and you have more control over your time. So who are you working for? You have to remember that your audience is Christ. He is an impartial master. And what this means is that you should seek to honor him with holy leadership. You see, what's so amazing about this passage is how radical it is. 
Again, I've, I don't know if you guys have been watching it, but I love the TV show The Mandalorian. It's great. If you hate the new Star Wars, that's fine. I liked it. A lot of people hate it. But if you want to just watch something that is universally beloved, watch The Mandalorian. Around episode two, all the Mandalorians start fighting and do stuff, and I'm not going to spoil anything, but they say this one line. They say, this is the way. And I was so stoked about that the first time I saw that. And it caught me just stirred and thinking because I think what happens is we kind of almost either over-Christianize or we compartmentalize our lives. And we think like, oh, Sunday's for Jesus. The rest of the week is for me. I'm going to work how I want to work. I'm going to take care of my employees the way I want to take care of them. I'm going to love my wife and my my kids the way I want to do it. And then I'll go back and do stuff for Jesus on Sunday. That's not the way. The way of Jesus is so different, so other. See, this passage, it gives us perspective that the gospel changes how we relate to each other. Our culture subtly tells us that there is a hierarchy of value. That it tells us where we fit in this value system. Who do you you know? How much money do you have? What car do you drive? Who do you follow on Instagram? As if that somehow gives meaning and depth and purpose to our lives. But this text crushes that idea. Right? There are, yes, different roles. And in no way do these roles define our value. The hierarchy does not exist for the Christian. We have the same Lord and we await the same judgment. Further, Scripture tells us that showing partiality is inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus. It is. We should relate to people differently from the way our culture relates to people. That means when we see people who are broken in poverty and desperation, we need to love them. With an unfailing love. I mean, there are people in this town and in this community who are utterly broken. Beyond anything that we could ever fathom. Their lives are so shattered. And it's so easy to be like, well, just get a job. Try harder. Do more. And it's so far from the way of Christ to live and act that way. We must relate differently. We must not give preferential treatment to a certain class or ethnic group. We need to care for the rich, yes. We need to care for the powerful, but we also need to care for the poor and the powerless. We have to be careful about our body language, our attention to others and the way that we communicate to others. We don't want to give the impression that we are superior or that someone's not worth our time. We don't want to dehumanize individuals by thinking less of them. We don't want to idolize any human by thinking too highly of them. Additionally, the gospel changes the way that we evaluate what is important. What matters? What matters to you? What matters according to this text? It should be your relationship with Jesus. You see, what's so significant about the New Testament, there there are people who subscribe to this brand of Christianity that if you believe in God, if you do the right things, well, then God's just going to pour on you a ton of blessing. If you just start giving money, then God's going to just funnel it back your way. That's not biblical Christianity. That's the prosperity gospel, and it's a false gospel. The good news of the gospel is that you are given a gift that is kept for you, that that is never going to perish is never going to fail, that will always be there, that you are given security and hope beyond hope. We're getting ready to take a big, long road trip. Today I went to clean out our car because we're going to be in a car with a six-year-old for 10 hours. So pray for us. Please pray for us, right? It's going to be a long, long day. We're excited. We're eager to go. It's going to be fun. We're, We're so thankful that people blessed us 
to do this, to have this small vacation. But man, I'm telling you, I always get anxious before road trips. I'm like checking the tires. I'm looking at the under the hood like I know anything about cars, which I don't. And then I'm calling people like Daniel to be like, hey, you know anything about cars, which he does. And so I say all that to say this. So often I've had cars and things fail me, right? And I feel like it's just an ongoing reminder that nothing in this world lasts. The most important thing in this life is not whether you work in a sawmill or an office building in a nice part of downtown. What matters is how do you respond to Jesus? Is he your master? Jesus said it like this in Mark eight thirty six: For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? If you know Christ, then you are rich. Because of this, we can say with Paul as having nothing yet possessing everything. The person who has Jesus and nothing else has no less than the person who has Jesus and everything else. Do you belong to Jesus Christ? Then you have everything. Then what you do in this life matters. It matters in this life and it will be revealed in the next life. What matters most to you is the economy, the president, your term, your, your, your team, how they're doing today. Don't tell me about Kansas City. I don't want to know your grades, right? What is it? We should all long to say like Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you do not have Christ, like if you don't know Jesus, man, I'm just begging you, receive the one who though being the ultimate master became the ultimate servant. That he died for sinners like us. All he did was show kindness and compassion in a world that didn't even value children and the poor. He said, let the children come to me. And he gave sight to the blind and he healed the sick and he raised the dead. There's been no man like him. And yet in living this way, he chooses freely to die for us that we might have life. There's no other religion like this. Every religion tells you, if you do all these good things, then God will be satisfied with you. Christianity says God is the one who pursues us and offers to us life and life abundantly. Jesus came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves to free us from slavery to sin and to bring us into loving relationship with the Father. He came to give us what we could not earn, life and life eternal. And he came to make us what we could not become. No longer slaves, but sons and daughters of the living God. He is the obedient servant. He is the best master. And he is the sovereign Lord. Look to him and live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you acknowledging that you are absolutely all we need. God, so often in this world, we, we seek to fulfill or satisfy or gratify ourselves with lesser things. We are so easily pleased only to want something new, something else. There is a longing deep within our souls for you. Would you stir us, Lord? Would you compel us? Would you call us back to you? Would we be a people who labor, who work for our king? Would we serve not to please man, but to please you? Would we be good employers? Would we be good bosses? Would we care for those who work for us? Would we love them, Lord, like you have loved us? God, for those in this room who don't know you, I pray that you would stir them, compel them to come and know you. To not know others who have failed in displaying you, Lord, but to know you, the one who calls us and says, Come, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. 
God, we are so grateful to know this truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.